Welcome to Wolverine Reads, a theatrical podcast celebrating new plays. I'm Nathaniel Quinn, producing director of Wolverine Theatrics. Welcome to Wolverine Reads, uh, our playwright interview series. This is Nathaniel Quinn, the producing director for Wolverine Theatrics and Wolverine Reads. And today I'm joined by Marcus France, who is the playwright for the state of Mississippi versus Davis Knight, um, which you have listed as excavated by Victoria E. Bynum and that you uh, dramatized the the play. Uh, If you would for me, please, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself, uh, your name, first and last name, uh, what your background is in theater itself, whether it's just playwriting or do you do, do you play in other facets? Um, And one boring fact about yourself. Well, let's see. Um, my name is Marcus France. Uh, I've been, I really, I only do plays. I will not I get on, I have been on stage once and I broke a pinky finger and I think that was a message to uh, stay the hell off, even though I had no speaking, <laughs> no speaking role at all. I mean, yeah, I was just, I was just standing there as a guard. So that was my one time on and I don't think I want to do it again, but I love writing plays. There's just, History provides no, no limit on fascinating stories. Sure. And I kind of like, I, I tend to uh, focus on people who, uh, who were doing the right thing at a time when the wrong thing was the, the way with country was going or the okay. world or whatever. I, I like the ones that stand up at, at a time when there's a lot of stress. Well, let me ask you this, uh, at the risk of sounding ignorant as a, as a director and playing with, uh, having the opportunity to play with your material, um, you focus mostly on historical narratives, is that true? Almost entirely, yeah, and if, if, if something's sort of autobiographical, I kind of consider that historical anyway, sure. so, yeah, so, but, uh, yeah, minor characters in history that, that, uh, you know, played a big role at the time. And then people forgot about, like one of my, my first screenplays was uh, about General Stilwell and he's fascinating. Uh, he, if uh, the country had followed what he was trying to do in China in 1942, we would have never gone to Vietnam. So I love finding people like that in history that uh, stood up against the, the, a bad tide, a tide mm-hmm. going, going the wrong way. And what about it? So we all have the different elements that draws to characters, whether historical or, or fictional characters. What about these characters like Stonewall or in this case, Quitman Ross uh, via Davis Knight? What about those characters draws you to them and once encourages you to celebrate their story as a playwright? I just think the person swimming against the tide when the tide is, is going into a polluted sea are, are just always fascinating. And Quitman Ross, even though he really wasn't a crusader for, uh, mm-hmm. for civil rights, you know, he was, he was just sort of bemused by it. And uh, it's, it's, it, it, he's, he's really interesting. I mean, he was comfortable in his environment, but you know, when you look at how uh, clear-eyed he was in defending Davis Knight in this, in this case, you wonder, you just wonder uh, how people, how his friends could not have been pulled along with him. You know what I'm saying? It's like yeah, all yeah. of his friends would have still been racist, but, but he thought it was kind of goofy. 
Yeah, I suppose, I mean, we'd look at it that way. And I know the cast and I talked about that a handful of times is who is this guy? And, and how does he, how does he function in this society in, in the early forties, Mississippi, that is still very heavily racist and has all of that subculture built into their society, but not, he's still charming enough that some of the other, uh, the witnesses on the stand refer to him by name as if they, you know, once this is all said and done, they're going to go out for cocktails or go hit the links and play some golf afterwards. Yeah. I, yeah, it, it, is, it is. Particularly with, this kind of comes up a lot with Southern liberals. It's how, how are they so comfortable? They're so, they are so comfortable with their neighbors, it seems. And yet they, they're, uh, they're heterodox, you know, I mean, they yeah. just don't, they don't fit in, they don't fit in, but they do fit in, you know, they're, they, as far as what they want for, for the world and for the country is, is totally different from what they're living, but they love their neighbors somehow or other and, <laughs> and uh, just get along with them just fine. And Quitman Ross fits into that category pretty, pretty, pretty dramatically. Sure. As you dig into historical pieces and you find these stories like that of Quitman Ross and, and Davis Knight, how do you, how do you, Marcus, start into that that journey of these of discovery of these characters i ask uh i have my you know my own background in in historical in theater history and the different things that inspire me and catch my intrigue but what is that like looking at history from a playwright's perspective how how do you start that process um i don't know about for this particular play because this this particular play um uh, the big story attracted me more than the character first. You know, sure. I mean, I didn't didn't know anything about Quitman Ross at the beginning. I just thought that this was, I mean, uh, putting somebody on, on trial for what their genetic makeup is is just insane. You know, so for this particular story, it was it was the big story before the the character um, was Stillwell. That uh, my first screenplay mm-hmm. was it was a different because. Uh, I came across a poem that he wrote when he was really frustrated with John Kaiszczak. And that poem is what led me to, you know, keep digging on him personally. And so the entree into that screenplay was the character rather than the big story at first. So usually, it, usually it's that way. It's that I get really fascinated by the character and then, and then started uh, researching the, the large events around him. But in, in the case of this Mississippi case, it was the large events first that, that drew me into it. And Quitman Ross was just sort of a, um, something that was inevitably, inevitably discovered along the way. Because we know that this story, the story of, of Davis Knight and Quitman Ross and, and the court case comes based on, based out of rather, the discovery in the free state of Jones by Victoria Bynum. Is that, did you find yourself with the novel first the 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 film version first or did you were you reading something else that led into a connection to the free state of jones oh okay great yeah that there's a this is an interesting little thread um the first thing was the civil war series by ken burns because one of those episodes they talked about a county in in uh in mississippi that that we you know rebelled against confederacy Mm -hmm. and there's this old rule about the, the Civil War, that the higher you go in elevation in the South, uh, the, the more resistance to slavery there is because it doesn't fit. 
if that doesn't work at, in highland areas because you, it's not cotton producing, you know, it's not, uh, it's not plantation crops. So, but this is a case, I mean, this, this, this part of Mississippi is not highlands, it's piney woods, which makes it mm-hmm. so that the plantation system didn't really work for there very well there either. But still, I mean, they're totally surrounded by, by it's the most rabidly Confederate state in the country. So why, how do you have these, these, uh, this, this county that says, no, we're, we don't want any part of it. So when the movie came out, you know, I thought, like I thought when I saw the, the Civil War series with Ken Burns that somebody would make a movie and they did. And when I first went to the theater with it, I, I my first watch of the movie, I was, I was impressed with it. And then, since then I've become very dis- disappointed with it, <laughs> but, um, that led to a book, uh, which was a collection of three, well, the the Thomas Knight book and his his aunt, um, I forget her name. Uh, she also wrote a book. So there were two or th- two books and one magazine article about Newton Knight, mm-hmm. specifically fo- focusing on New- Newton Knight. But when I watched the movie, I was I kind of had, had the 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 same feeling that that uh, Vicky had when when we started talking about this is that the trial is more interesting than the the rebellion almost because I mean here's this descendant of New- Newton Knight uh, who <laughs> looks it doesn't I mean he has he's 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 a light skinned person you sure. know but just this this historical memory of in the area it's like that little town called Sosa where all these all the Knight family kind of congregated that whole place was biracial that whole little little village was biracial and it was like because people knew that the people no matter what their skin color was they were they were looked upon as as black you know and the more I got into that the the local history the the um, the tension you know that tension in that county goes back all the way back to before the Civil War. There were all kinds of clan fights back then, mm-hmm. which Vicky did a fantastic job of bringing up out in her book. I mean, I don't know, she got all that stuff. You, I mean, you read it. I mean, it's just yeah. mind-boggling, isn't it? It's, it's beyond me. It was. Uh, I definitely have to say, and I told her this that the way that she writes that is is so simplified without being simple. Oh yeah, that it's engaging almost as historical narrative instead of just a historical piece because i was i I just remember a lot of the textbooks that i we would i had to read in college or or grad school but it was just so bland Mm -hmm. and it made it so difficult for me and how i learn and read versus reading vicky's material that was just engaging and it even trying to track the family trees was like, oh, this person's related to this, and this is related to, oh, okay. That's amazing how useful her appendices were, wasn't yes. it? It's just, it's just, you know, I mean, she did such a fantastic, I mean, it's just amazing that, that you know, all the, all the brothers and siblings and, and uh, um, the, the uncles and cousins and how they all connect up, and, and you go back from one, the Valentine family thing to where it connects up with a Knight family. Right. And then you see those names reappear in 1948. Valentine is on there, you know, um, Knight is on there. Um, almost all of those names, you can find uh, ancestors from, from back in the 1860s that were involved in the, in the rebellion against uh, the state of Mississippi, against the Confederacy. Well, that's something, <laughs> touch on, touch back to something you were just saying. 
that in in that community, especially in Soso and and the greater area of Jones County and all of the other small counties that that are listed from the witnesses in the show, um, it had this very surreal feeling to it that nobody in the community really cared until they had the public uh, forum to speak in a courtroom. And then all kinds of stories seemed to come out trying to make, trying to vilify Davis Knight instead of, you know, whatever nosy neighbor happened to snitch off the family or happened to throw a tantrum uh, was just fascinating to me. How can this community, like you were saying earlier, these neighbors got along and then suddenly they didn't. Yeah. And then, and then what happens after that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, you, you, I Who, really want to go, right. I really want to go down there and look, you know, right? I got that Who, county, want to walk around and see what, what, <laughs> what people are like. Who wins because Davis Knight goes to jail? That's that's the big question. Who who raised such a, a fuss about it that this a man who, by all intents and purposes, is fair skinned, married a white woman, nobody had any questions about the wedding, the marriage certificate, nobody cared until they did. But what was to what purpose? Well, it does seem like the the oil exploration in the in the county had a lot to do with that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it was, and I and I the greed is so deep that, I mean, oil didn't even have to be discovered. It just had to be, it just had to be looked for, you know, just a rumor that it might be on your land and that there was a exploration crew coming down to uh, just look around and see what they could find was enough to, uh, in this case, probably initiate the court case. Although uh, even Vicki can't um, put a firm finger on it. It was who was the one that decided, hey, we can screw Davis Knight out of his land. Right. If, uh, you know, if we point out that he's and that's amazing to think that if you're if you have any uh, non-white blood in you, your property is at risk that someone can come along and say, well, you don't have the right to this property because of your genetic composition. That's just that's just sort of staggering. You know, right. uh, it's just hard to believe that state law upheld that kind of greed. I agree. That's that's been something that's been very fascinating to watch. Uh, in the different forums as episodes are released, the different people that chime in. And I can't believe that this was allowed. How did these lawyers let this slide? Man, the judge is all over the place. Oh, now I know why the judge is all over the place. This is ridiculous. Yeah. And I, yeah, I and that one character, that is one character, E.K. Collins, has come up in some of my reading of, I'm doing a lot of reading of uh, what was going on in the civil rights movement in 1961 and 1964. And E.K. Collins plays a role in it because he was one of the ones who was, when they were trying to integrate Ole Miss with James Meredith, he was one of the most vicious people willing to do anything in the state legislature to prevent that. Hmm. So, I mean, and of course, in the, in the play, he just has those two, well, he just has that one really good scene, you know, where he's uh, explaining why, you know, the court can get away with what they want to get away with. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's just it's just so deep. It's like they're all joshing each other about their how white they are, you know, because they all knew that they all knew that the, what was going on during slavery days, you know. Right. You didn't have to ask permission of your slave if you were horny. You know, you just you just said, hey, sweetie, lie down and and take it. She couldn't say no. 
So uh, that's what it all goes back to. And everyone in, everyone in the South, everyone in Mississippi knows that. They know that, but they're trying to BS each other. And they've been trying to BS each other for over, for now 150 years. That was going, what was going on back then. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, anybody could have, you know, one, three, four, 5% sub-Saharan African blood. It's just human nature. Well, I'm going to shift back a little bit. So, and I, again, I love watching. I, I thank you for be, letting me be a part of this process uh, with, with this show in particular, because one of the things you sent me as we started this endeavor was the, the court transcripts and getting to watch how you created language based on the actual transcript was absolutely fascinating to me. But I'm curious to you as a playwright, is it always, and I'm, I may, this may not be the correct word choice. So, so, you know, don't, please don't be offended if, if it is the incorrect word choice, but as you create words that give life through voice to characters, what is, how does that typically work? How do you work in that process as a playwright? Um, like I said, this one, I see it, it seems to me not being a playwright much easier because the, the transcript was there and you were able to Im- adjust to fit the audience accordingly. But in other instances, how do you work to come up with such fluid dialogue? Um, that's a really good question. I probably take some thought. This, but for this particular play, you're right. This, this was easy. This was really easy. I mean, that's why, um, you know, I point out that Vicky X, I didn't even have to find this, find that transcript. Um, Vicky, you know, she kept it from her research. She also told me that uh, some friends of hers, I guess, tried to get the transcript too from that county court and they wouldn't mm-hmm. give it up anymore. So she might've gotten the lap in the last person that the court willingly provided that transcript to. And uh, so once I had that, you know, I mean, if you, when you look at it, at least 90% of the words are straight from the transcript. All I did for this particular play was, you know, when people are thinking they, sometimes they do a little bit of talking and it's like a wasted sentence mm-hmm. while, they're, while they're delaying to think. And so I would take out that there's a lot, you'll, you'll notice that there's a lot of places where the first sentence of what was said by the lawyers or the, or the people giving testimony was that I, I took it out because it's, it just, it just, it gets, it's repetitive. So there was that, um, this one, I'm really proud of the, particularly the first interlude between the first and second act where, uh, um, Quitman Ross has his, uh, his little soliloquy there. Mm-hmm. That's all mine that I had to invent. For listeners, that's where he's talking about the background of Judge Collins. That's what you're. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because the, <laughs> isn't that a riot? I mean, he actually did during the Willie McGee trial walk across the street and get some psychological experts from the pool hall. I mean, <laughs> how do you get away with that kind of crap? As, you know? And as a judge, that's the part that blows my mind. The judge does it, he doesn't hint it to one of the lawyers like he does for uh, uh, Schwarzfeger through all of this, where he finally says, this is how you can ask these questions. Stop wasting time. <laughs> he just straight up gets up. Nope. I'm going to go get these people. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the Willie McGee trial. Yeah. That's, that's, I, I, I really love that story because I mean, the woman was, that was consensual sex, you know, it was consensual. And still this guy gets executed for raping her. 
he actually got executed. And it was on it was on a statewide radio network. It's like the whole state, all the white people in the state wanted to hear the buzz of the electric chair. Unbelievable. And they knew it. And they knew it. You know, I mean, everyone that knew that woman knew that 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 she was lying, but that didn't matter. It didn't matter. They just did not give a, they, they just did not care about justice as long as if the person was non-white. As a matter of fact, they had a, a stake in it being unjust. They had a, they actually saw it in their self-interest to be unjust. Mind-boggling. I'm going to cycle back up because I am interested, like I said, in, in you as a playwright and how you develop dialogue. Now, we know that we had the transcript for this one to play with and to build into those soliloquies like we were speaking about until we got sidetracked into to the Willie case. But how do you, where do you draw inspiration for, for dialogue? And how do you, if you were to give that piece of advice to young playwrights in discovery of dialogue, what would it be? Um, I, you know, I think the best example of where I did a really good job of uh, creating dialogue kind of out of a, kind of out of a vacuum, I guess. Mm-hmm. My, my play about uh, the assassination of Christopher Marlowe, I obviously I read everything by Marlowe and I had before that time read everything by Shakespeare and I just immersed myself in it. And what happened, I noticed, I noticed that my dialogue that, that I had to invent for the Marlowe play unconsciously had uh, blank verse pacing, you know, the, the, it felt like blank verse. And I wasn't, I didn't actually go through counting how many beats there were mm-hmm. per line. But what I noticed while I was, while I was researching that is, you know, we think of um, the Elizabethan playwrights as being verbose. And actually it's a blank verse is totally the opposite. Blank verse is the, is the original discovery in my opinion of less is more, you know, the old screenwriting adage, less mm-hmm. is more, try to get, try to get every single unnecessary word out of there. When we were doing the, the director for, um, for my Marlowe play was Roger Wynn and he let me sit in and, and watch the auditions and the rehearsals and all that stuff. Um, I was actually welcome, which I understand sometimes why directors don't want that because writers can be a royal pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what I, occasionally would ask the actors, do you feel like you're stuck with mouthfuls? You know, do you feel like you're stuck trying to get more words out than you need, you know? Hmm. And so my whole thing is to strip that thing down to only the essential words to get it, to get it as tight as possible. And that's, like I said, that's the old screenwriting uh, rule of less is more. So I try to get this few words in there as possible. I mean, even with this play, I don't think we ever felt like there was an overabundance of words. I think, you know, even in some of the soliloquies and the monologues that Quitman Ross has, it always felt, it never felt overburdened with, with legal jargon. Everything moved, everything had a purpose. And, and on behalf of the entire cast, thank you for that. Because you're right, there are some plays and playwrights out there where it just feels like a mouthful, for lack of a better term. Or there's so many words that could be pared down into, uh, go shut the door, you know, or something that simple. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah, and there's, you know, exposition. You've got to get, you've got to find the absolute minimum, absolute 
minimum of necessary exposition. And that's, that's cause that's a killer. You know, if you, you have to stop and explain who you, the characters explain who they are and where they're going and why they're there and all that kind of stuff. You, you've got to, you've got to have uh, things happening that do that, you know, action that, that serves the purpose of exposition and not words. You're just killing it if you do that. So, and I think that, well, this play was so easy. There's just one setting, there's a courtroom, you don't have to tell what it is, you know, you know by, yeah, by what's yeah. happening that this is, this is a court action, you know? So that was pretty simple for this one, getting, getting draining it of all the exposition as possible. Well, I think that was one of the things that, that drew me to this play is that it's a single location, even, you know, uh, I, I think you and I talked about this. This was the largest cast that Wolverine Reads has worked with to date um, with a cast of 21, 20, 21. Mm -hmm. um, but that it was in a single location made it so easy to work with and towards as far as storytelling um, and with without having to explain oh well here's the courtroom this is the day this is what the temperature was we can all imagine <laughs> as we sit and listen to this like oh it's Mississippi and there's it you know summer of Mississippi winter of Mississippi there's there's a clear vision that I think everybody will assume that makes this this play have life in an oral setting like this. Yeah, that, that, I was really glad to do it. It was, I'm, and I'm glad your people decided to take it on because uh, I needed, you know, uh, what you went through. Because I'm assuming that you, because I gave you a 117 page script, mm -hmm. so um, I told you that <laughs> you're going to be doing some of my work. Because all I was able to cut was 11. I cut it down from 128 to 117, and I'm sitting there thinking it's got to get down to 85, and I don't see it. So I'm going to put this in someone else's hands for a while and let them pare it down and find out what's essential. And so uh, that was that was that was very good for me. Good. I'm glad. I like hearing that we're helpful to playwrights in this process, and it's not just a one-way thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, I got a real good taste of this when I was working with Roger. The um, that relationship between the director and writer is is just fascinating because, you know, the way the way we did this um, for that play was I almost never said a word during uh, during rehearsals it was almost was completely quiet. And then uh, after the actors and left, Roger and I would sit there and we'd compare our own notes. And that that's fun. That is the that is where theater is really fun. I 100% agree with you. Oh, it's, and you sit there and go, because there was casting that Roger did that I was really disappointed at the beginning when he, when he picked my, because I wanted him, there was one particular actor I wanted to play Marlo. And um, he, uh, he picked, you know, he didn't make any effort to get the guy and he picked somebody himself. And I was a little bit disappointed because he didn't look exactly, he didn't look close enough to Marlo. According to my opinion, he looked a little bit more Mediterranean, but he was utterly fantastic. His name was Mark Pergola and he nailed the thing, totally nailed it. And his leadership, you know, because the star, you learn that they have to be a leader. Yeah. You know, set an example for everybody else on, on, uh, on work ethic and all that sort of thing. And he was just oh he, he was great he couldn't have been better could not have been better and it was not my choice it was roger's choice so that's i that's where i learned you know that shut up and let the director do their work <laughs> well i can definitely say there have been a handful of playwrights that i've worked with in the past you know and i wouldn't trade i wouldn't change any of this because you learn from every 
every interaction with somebody you learn from it and how your process works. But there were definitely a handful of playwrights that I went, I don't know. And, and I should be clear, this is well before I started Wolverine Theatrics, but a handful that I just went, I don't need to work with you on a new project because they were the opposite side of that. Well, this is what it is. And this line should be said this way and just started giving character notes. And instead of sitting back in that collaborative effort, and I, I understand you know, it's the same thing when I direct a show and, and let the producer, not let the producer start coming in to watch rehearsals and asking questions. It's your baby, <laughs> but you have to be able to give and take while you're, while you're creating. And you're missing out, the writers that are too overbearing about in that way are missing out on so much of the fun, Yeah, you know, because um, it's, Here's here's what the writer, particularly interaction with the actors, the writer, I'm thinking of how do I get from lights up to curtain? I'm thinking about the whole big thing. The actor's thinking, how do I get from the first word to the second word? You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's what they're thinking. And that difference in how you look at it is can can I mean there was there was with the Marlowe play, there was one of the actors, the actor playing one of the supporting characters, came up with the most fantastic idea. And I had completely missed it. You know, I completely missed it. It was uh, a, uh, what would happen at the end of the second act, um, where the, the actor, the way the scene ended, the actor had was, was strung up to be executed. You know, there was, there was an execution scene from, from Tamerlane. And he looked at me, looked at Roger, I guess, and said, what do I do? I mean, I'm, I'm hanging here and everyone else, because what's happened is a, a gun has gone off accidentally and everyone has left the stage. He can't leave the stage because he's hung. He's, 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 he's hung up to be executed. And he goes, well, what do I do? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know. I, have, I didn't think about this. I hadn't thought about it at all. You know, that, that he's just, I'm thinking about getting everybody off stage and having the gun go off. And he says, well, what if I just say, just yell out at the top of my lungs, get me down. You know, and I said, fuck yeah. <laughs> you know, I said, yes, <laughs> yes. That, you know, that's that's like an exclamation point for the whole act. And it wasn't my idea, it was the actor's idea. Right. You know, just because he wanted to make that moment work. I wasn't worried about that moment. I was worried about getting to the end of the act. And he just, boom, I want this moment to work. And he was right. So I, actors that are overbearing, I mean, writers that are overbearing about that kind of stuff miss out on so much of the fun. <laughs> No, it definitely needs those different lenses, the the wide the wide view lens from the playwright and the directors and the designers, and then the more focused lenses from the actors that are in, like you said, word to word or moment to moment, and letting all of that, all of those storytellers tell the story in a clear, cohesive way is is one of the greatest things that we can experience as theater makers. Yeah, that's where the fun is. You know, that's where the fun is. So, and I don't want to miss out on the fun. <laughs> well, speaking of fun, so we've talked about your plays and your process. What is your favorite theater to go see? You know, if it, um, my favorite place on planet Earth until it closed was the Victorian Theater. Um, one of my friends, an actor named uh, Wade Wood, bought it and ran it for about three or four years, and uh, it's just it was impossible to make a profit, and he got you know it's where he just couldn't run it anymore. Mm -hmm. That little theater sat about 65 or 70. Um, almost everything that, that, that Wade did was excellent. 
and uh, with really good cast, really good directors. And um, matter of fact, when he when he moved in there, I said, "Wait, wait, let me fix the library. Let me fix the library." You know, because he had all the the library. The if you ever were you ever at the Victorian? I'm not familiar with it. I'm sorry. Oh, it's 42nd and Hooker. It's just a, it was a house in a neighborhood in the basement. And this basically a, a kind of a shut-in guy, I think he might've had, well, I think he was here for, for some kind of illness, um, asthma. I think he was, in a, you know how people moved to Denver in the early 20th century that had asthma to get oh, to, yeah. yeah. So he was one of those people. And he, he was pretty well off and he built this house and he loved theater and he loved having his friends over. So he put a theater in the basement of his house. And over time, the house kind of became a little theater factory. It's like the upstairs bedrooms were all the, the costumes. And, and he had a terrific theater library, you know, all, all kinds of plays. I mean, 2000 mm-hmm. plays or something like that uh, in that little room. And I said, wait, let me let me let me alphabetize this, you know, and I spent hours in there, you know, getting those getting those things organized. And it was that was my favorite place on planet Earth. And I. I like, <laughs> since they've gone out of business, I guess my favorite is probably um, Vintage um, in okay. Aurora. I love the Vintage Theater. Bernie Cardell does a great job down there. Um, everyone involved with that does a really good job down at Vintage. And almost every play they do there is pretty good. I'm trying to think uh, about who I know that's worked at Vintage. Doesn't matter at the moment. <laughs> yeah, they, they did, before they moved out there, they did a play that I wish would be made into a movie. They did Moonlight and Magnolias. Also like Miner's Alley. I don't know if you've been there, but Miner's nope. Alley does really good But work. I do know Vance McKenzie, who works and does light design over there. He and I <laughs> have worked together a handful of times. <laughs> yeah. And I like, of course, Candlelight. They do, they've done a very good work up there, too. I think my favorite one that I saw up there was uh, Guys and Dolls. The, the, they brought in a girl that travels worldwide just playing that role of Adelaide. You know, the one that sings that just because the way she does that song, mm-hmm. uh, the person can develop a cold. Mm-hmm. She that she just she just nailed the whole play was great. But um, that was my favorite production up there. Well, you'll have to I'll take the opportunity to shamelessly plug myself because we just opened uh, Church Basement Ladies that I was fortunate enough to direct over there while everything is closed right now. Yeah, I, like they said theater was the last was the last thing to close or the first thing to close and it'll be the last thing to open mm-hmm. well on that note and i hope this isn't a dark note what should we watch to come from you in the near future whether it's new scripts that are coming out or as things slowly are allowed to open if you have anything that you want to plug are allowed to plug if we know it's coming at a different company um, we'd love to share that that information to our listeners for you uh, I'm bogged down with a novel right now that I'm writing. Um, it's the historical scope of the thing is just enormous. It's probably going to be a thousand pages long. So um, I've got 123,000 words already. And it's it's just right now I don't have control of it. It's, it's the first time I've tried to write a novel. So the play I was working on before that was something about uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Hmm. Uh, that. Well, so I'm, I'm thinking I might put the novel aside for a while and pick that up again because uh, <laughs> I'm just getting I'm getting buried, you know. Sure. I mean, it's just, I've, I, there's this big stack of books, that, you know, that I've got to go through, and it's just it's covering a scope of time from about 1820 till well, about 1850 until till present time. Um, it's just it's too big. So, so yeah, I don't have anything coming up uh, theater wise. Okay. 
and I plugged my best play anyway. My my Marlo, <laughs> my Marlo play is my best play. It's um, I honestly think that it's uh, in some ways it's better than Shakespeare in Love, and it's structured the same way. Marlo is just a little bit more interesting. Shakespeare is a, is fascinating for his talent, but I mean Marlo was a spy. You know, I mean he right. had a he had a big life outside of uh, theater. I mean it was just as a matter of fact the way I structured it. Uh, the first act is, is called I Am a Spy, which is all about his spy work. Second act is called I Am a Playwright, which is a play within the play, the creation of Tamburlaine, to bring it onto the stage. And then the third act is called I Am a Victim, because he was assassinated because he was a spy. <laughs> um, he fell on the wrong side of, uh, there was this dispute between Sir Walter Raleigh and uh, Lord Essex, that, uh, who, I mean, who could be the Queen's favorite, and it spilled over into politics and uh shakespeare came out i'm not shakespeare but marlo came out on the wrong end of that and got killed hmm. is there any place that we can send listeners to go look for that play Do you, is it is it published out somewhere or is it uh if oh, that's a good question you um they could come to me and i could send them the copy of it that's true i could do that um we never we it was it had a two-week run back in 04 and we never we never recorded it hmm. so there's there's nothing there's nothing on video on that one well if anybody um, wants to get their hands on that play um reach out to us here at at wolverine reads wolverine theatrics and i'll put you in touch with marcus and that way uh you're not flooded with so many <laughs> emails while you're trying to focus on your book and your other play. And we could kind of help filter that through for you. That'd be great. I should send it to you anyway, so you can see what my best work is. <laughs> I'll definitely give it a read when I have time to sit down to do it. Cool. Well, thank you, Marcus. Um, again, this is playwright Marcus France, uh, who wrote The State of Mississippi versus Davis Knight. Uh, which was excavated by Victoria Bynum. Uh, thank you again so much for sharing this piece of, of American history with us uh, in this format and letting us turn it into uh, a podcast production, Marcus. We're greatly appreciative of that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the State of Mississippi vs. Davis Knight, excavated by Victoria E. Bynum, processed and dramatized by Marcus J. France. Featuring the voice talents of Jason Pasqua, Heath Howes, Justin Glover, Mason Quinn, Dan Muth, Sarah Foreman, Amy Woods, David Weigand, Kent Sugg, Elliot Clough, Phil Foreman, Hugh Butterfield, Francis Leary, Lenny Scoville, David Harlan, Benjamin Gonzalez, Allison Quaggenharken, and Chris Will. Directed by Nathaniel Quinn, with sound design by Kyle Harper and original music by Scott Hurst. If you've been enjoying our content, please head over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash Wolverine Reads and consider becoming a patron. We are passionate about creating and celebrating new theater. Becoming a patron helps us to continue creating and improving our craft. And from all of us at Wolverine Theatrics, thank you for listening, liking, and sharing.